I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Ditloff. Uh Dean, COVID, it's still bad. It's not good for anybody still. Um, it's <laughs> raging and I hate it. But uh, what, have you been, what have you been doing? Um, now that you can't go eat in a restaurant or whatever, <laughs> whatever people did before COVID. Yeah, actually, this uh, the beginning of this week in Toronto was like double um, lockdown because there's all the code stuff. And then we had a giant snowstorm, so we couldn't really even get out of our apartment. <laughs> so it was oh, like no. Oh, no. a wild time. Uh, but we embraced it. Um, we're playing a lot of the video games, but also we decided to watch uh, the TV show The Righteous Gemstones, which has been around for a while. But we're just late to it. Never get around to it. And uh, man, I'm glad that I did. It's it's on HBO. So I don't know if you're some people like HBO shows and some people don't because there's <laughs> HBO things in them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a great spoof of like Southern gospel culture. And uh, Adam Devine plays an amazing youth pastor character. <laughs> and Danny McBride's out there doing his uh, messed up um, scandalous pastoring. And yeah, it's great. I love it. That, that's why I'm passing the COVID time. Yeah, that's good. I've been watching it, too, and it is such a good show. I, I don't know how I missed it the first time around. I know. I'm usually so on the ball about TV, but um, Righteous Gemstones is great. Uh, there's clearly somebody writing for that show who has some kind of insider knowledge into youth group. Yeah. Um, man, there is this is not spoiling anything, but there is one uh, one episode early on where Adam Devine's character is having youth group at like a sky zone, like an <laughs> indoor trampoline park. And it is out of control. It's like so on. it's just really it's on perfect. point. Uh the tone is just right. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Such a good show um, about the complicated interworkings of a megachurch and uh, and the weird the weirdness of inside Christian culture, but also like uh, a lot of scandalous and uh, true crime kind of behavior. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this is not a Richard Jensen's podcast. I mean, not yet, but uh, <laughs> I will say it could be. It could be. Um, there is this character in it, though, that is like. Uh, a Satanist who converted to Christianity and like it's too real. It's He's so too real. real. It it is like painful. The amount of it's the perfect mixture of sort of tragedy and comedy all put together. And like man, like I have met that person in real life. It is like wild to watch it on TV. It's the kind of thing where you're like, huh, this is in my brain from my own history. But like, <laughs> surely it would never be representable on the screen. And nevertheless, they found a way to do it. So yeah, it's a it's great. It is wild that throughout my evangelical experience, I have 
I have heard sermons from not one, but two different former Satanists. And I think that's crazy. <laughs> what? How did that happen? The uh, the Satanist to preacher pipeline is real. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Uh, well, it gives you a good testimony and that's all you need. That's it. Well, okay. So we've been watching TV during COVID. The other thing I've not been doing during COVID, though, is going to church because it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad outside. I don't want to get this awful disease. Um so we haven't really been going to church, and that's a bummer, I guess. I mean, it's – I have such a weird love-hate relationship with church. On the one <laughs> hand, I like going. Uh, I like going. I like getting this – I hate hearing the good word. On the other hand, church is so – it can just be so boring, though. Um, but anyways, um, say what you will about church, like I just have. Um, not being able to go, though, is maybe the worst the worst part of it all. Um, if if I, I could choose not to go, and that would be fine. But not being able to go is a whole a whole thing within itself. So – to slightly fill like the the Sunday morning spiritual void in my life, um, I started reading Ernesto Cardinal's Gospel and Soul and Taname. My wife got it for me for Christmas. It's this great republished Wiffenstock version that is really cool. Um, something I really like about this Wiffenstock version <laughs> uh, is that um, it uh, it's like all the chapters are oriented around the like the liturgical readings of the year. So like if you start at Christmas. Um, and you start reading through the gospel in Sultaname one chapter a week, <laughs> you'll be reading it at the same sort of pace that your church is doing. It's at. a good devotional. Yeah, I mean, it, it is for sure. It uh, it definitely works out that way. It's a, a really interesting book, though. Um, the gospel in Sultaname is a book we've talked about a lot in this podcast, but if you're not familiar, I'll just tell you what it is right now. It is a series of like transcriptions of Bible studies that Ernesto Cardinal, who is like a revolutionary Catholic priest, uh, who is a whole person with himself. Got to talk about, we can talk about him later, um, but whatever. Anyways, it's a it's a transcription of Bible verses that Ernesto Cardinal did with like peasant farmers in Nicaragua right before the revolution in Nicaragua kicks off. It is fun because all of the conversations are really interpreting the Bible through like the revolutionary, you know, like zeitgeist of the moment. So like <laughs> in in the book, like every Bible verse has to do with communism. And I think that's very fun. <laughs> Like, sometimes they don't really have to do with communism at all, but they make them about that, and I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, they're all great. Um, they're all – all of these, like, farmers in this, like, island in Nicaragua, they are all convinced that uh, Mary is a communist, and um, it's fun. Also, man, the chapter from last week – sorry, this is a digression already, but the chapter from last week was The Wedding at Cana. And it is my favorite one because it's not really about politics. It's just, like – Jesus liked to drink. And that was kind of like the takeaway. It was really fun. So anyways, that's that's my one big spiritual practice the last few weeks, which is yeah, maybe same. showing showing you the poverty of my internal life. But um, uh, the chapter this coming week, though, uh, it focuses on the Beatitudes, which um, if you're not like a church person, you don't know what these are. They are like a, a, a series of sayings attributed to Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, once we kind of start going through them, you'll probably recognize some of them just from popular culture or whatever. Um, the Beatitudes are mostly a set of like moral teachings or possible visions of the world, maybe. And if you take them like really seriously and think about them, you know, beyond just like like their face value, they can be like pretty radical things uh, if you try to put them into practice or if you're really self-reflective about them. Um, and I think that's really exciting. And I think that the Beatitudes were... Um, a thing that like were really important to me at a particular time um, in my evangelical transition away from conservatism or something. Um, there's a uh, there's a book that Leo Tolstoy wrote called The Kingdom of God is Inside You. And uh, he focuses on the Beatitudes quite a bit in the book. And um, 
I remember reading that as an evangelical and thought like, whoa, this guy's on something. Yeah, these might be too. really these might be really important. And um, maybe you can't just be like a conservative and believe these. So all of that, in light of all of that, in this episode, we're going to take a beat from, I don't know, whatever else we would normally be doing this week and do a little Bible study of our own around the Beatitudes. Um, specifically, we're going to just kind of like uh, we're going to take the Beatitudes and filter our reading through um, some like liberation theology oriented perspectives, um, bring in some of the voices of the of the great <laughs> liberation theologians we know and love on this podcast. And then I think like. So we'll do that for sure. But then I think we want to make the case that like the Beatitudes are pretty formative and normative beliefs for Christians. And if you do take them seriously, um, you'll have a really hard time being a capitalist. I think that's the maybe the end, (laughs) the end claim. And it might even do you a favor trying to think of some alternative to capitalism. It might indeed. Let's get things going just the way we're supposed to. Uh, Dean, do you want to read the Beatitudes? Do you want to read the Bible on this podcast? Yeah, sure. All right. So I see Matt has uh, put into our little um, our little planning doc here. I think this is the Matthew version as opposed to the Luke version. And we it is for sure the Matthew that. version. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, that matters Probably you already know, I guess, if you're a listener who knows a lot about the Bible, but I don't know. We'll get into it later. So the Matthew version says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So those are the Beatitudes. Um, Just from that, you can hear, I mean, you can hear the moral vision in them, right? Um, Jesus is kind of giving this sermon up on up on the mount. We, we love this mount; it's great. Um, but he's telling you exactly um, who he's prioritizing. He's telling you like who you know God cares about, and he's also telling you about a possible world that could actually exist um, that's better than the one that we live in now, and that's great. So that's those are the things that are kind of going on here. Um, but there are some complications. Um, so I think in I don't know if this is your experience, Dean, you can tell me, I guess, in a minute. But um, I think for most of my life, I well, maybe not most of my life now because now I'm old. But um, <laughs> growing up in evangelical, most of the these Beatitudes were were centered in two ways. One, they're either like really spiritualized. So, you know, um, blessed are the poor in spirit or something. That means something really in particular and like working out what that might mean. Um, you know, is a, is about sort of um, your relationship with God in particular, like individually. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they're like, um, they're meant individualistically in like a self-reflective way. Like, um, okay, blessed are the meek. And like, but what does meek mean for me? Like, does it mean that right. I don't really have a lot of things or whatever? You know, it's, it's that sort of like internal, like introspective kind of thing. Um, and both of those ways of looking at the Beatitudes are, I mean, they're not wrong. Like, I guess go for it. But also, I think it misses the point <laughs> largely. Mm-hmm. Or it, you know, um, in uh, in spiritualizing these things or in individualizing these um, these particular, like, uh, blessed R's, uh, you get, like, a, a view of Christianity that doesn't really care that much about the material world. And I think that does suck. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. Is that is that jive with your whole situation? Is that is that your experience as well? Yeah, for sure. I think there's something to be said about the spiritual utility or the, like the personal or devotional um, way of reading the Beatitude, you know, whatever, like biblical texts are open to lots of different uses. And it's important to allow the Bible to be used in different kinds of ways. But I think like I would never want to say that you can't have a sort of personal spiritual devotional use for the text. In fact, we'll probably talk about it later. But like if that's the only thing that you think that they are saying, then it really closes off a lot of really interesting possibilities about them. And I think also kind of makes you miss the point. Uh, We can talk more about this later, too. But like in the Luke version, which doesn't have as much of the spiritualizing pieces to it. Uh, there's also a woe to rich people that follows uh, the Beatitudes. So it's, you know, really driving home that these are uh, social, socially important categories for Jesus in ways that I think a lot of, especially like if you're a Christian in a capitalist country, I mean, um, one thing that Marx definitely got right about religion is that it does often reflect the uh, economic conditions that it grows up in and you know, we are trained to read the Bible in capitalist ways, and uh, that means we often ignore those politicized versions and kind of favor, like you were just saying, that individualist perspective or, you know, trying to internalize all this and not really let it challenge the the outside until you get to people like, I don't know, you're a weird Christian evangelical who ends up reading Leo Tolstoy and you're like, whoa, if this means this for me, it also means a political program or something, right? But like, right. that's a, a pretty rare experience, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, on that point, it's worth it's worth uh, parsing it out a bit more. The the poor in spirit of Matthew uh, is a particular translation of of um, of, of another word um, from from Greek because that's the language that it was written in. Um, a fun fun Bible fact, in case you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, Ernesto Cardinal has sort of like a a, a a longer explanation of the translation around poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. I think is really fun. Um, so I don't I won't read it because there's kind of like a lot going on and um, you know uh, a lot of uh, Greek words kind of thrown in and uh, Hebrew kind of mixed in there too. And I'm not going to bother with it all because I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to read. But the point of it is this, that um, in Matthew, it's uh, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But in Luke, it's blessed are the poor. Um, so you see that uh, <laughs> that uh, spiritualizing impulse even within the Bible itself, which is something that you have to contend with. Um, love these contradictions, uh, for sure, the dialectic <laughs> of Matthew and Mark or uh, Matthew and Luke. Um, but anyways, um, <laughs> uh, Ernesto Cardinal says, you know, well, uh, but you still have to deal with it. Right. I, uh, there's. The uh, in Luke, it's the poor, but in Matthew, it's the, in the poor in spirit. And then he says this, the phrase of Matthew, poor in spirit, has created confusion. And many have believed that it deals with spiritual poverty. And I said that I met a priest who said that the poor in spirit were the good rich people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ernesto Cardinal, he uh, he's over accepting this difference in translation by just saying like, OK, sure. Well, in Luke, it's the poor. Blessed are the poor. But in Matthew, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, which are like. <laughs> the rich people who are re- or who are willing to like throw in with the poor or something who are uh, who are not going to be awful. Um, so I think that's pretty fun. Yeah, it's very fun. It's a clever, goofy reading, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, okay, give me one second. Let me find this next yeah. piece. Uh, okay. Oh, um, 
So alongside Ernesto Cardinal explaining that the uh, like the the farmers and like the people of Salantaname who are reading the Bible alongside of him, they kind of like take it up and they're just willing to kind of play in the space with him, which I think is very fun. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a few really fun um, reflections from the the people uh, in Salantaname. So one of them, Olivia, says that the poor in spirit or the poor in God are the poor, but provided they have the spirit of the oppressed and not the oppressors provided they don't have the mentality of the rich. So again, this is kind of like, uh, you know, there are some people who, um, who might have more means than like other people uh, who might be like middle-class or upper, upper middle-class or something. But like, as long as they have the spirit of the oppressed, if they're long, you know, as long as they're expressing uh, a sense of solidarity and that they don't have the mentality of the rich, that, that that's who it's talking about. Um, it's funny. I don't know. It's fun to hear people figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one though, because in, uh, Olivia's telling, it's not even the middle class. It's, uh, they're still poor, but they're also poor in spirit. Like this is the, uh, the, the poor in and for themselves, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like you're poor across really the board. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Refusing that ideology is very yeah. cool. Another person in, uh, in, in this like interchange angel, uh, says us poor people can also be exploiters. And, um, you know, kind of riffing off of of the the last point, though, that like you know, it's it's um, being poor doesn't necessarily make you morally good or something, but it, uh, it has there's something there's some other piece of the puzzle that that's going on. This is a theme that comes up kind of a lot in Gospel and Solentaname, which I think is really fascinating because it's you know it's a group of people who are like I don't know farmers on an island <laughs> in Nicaragua, and um, they are all uh, on the one hand very fired up about socialism. And then on the other hand, like very self-reflective and self-critical that like there's nothing like morally right about like, you know, there, there's being a poor person does not make you like morally correct in all you do or something. But um, there's this like interesting tension, I think, that uh, they have in the way that they're thinking about the gospel, that God has a preferential option for the poor. Um, but that doesn't mean that like uh, poor people are beyond reproach or something, which is such a mm-hmm. fascinating thing to, to see people like work out in that particular context. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe to like set the scene a little bit more too, because um, we described the book a bit, but not so much the conditions. Um, you know, if you don't know much about the Nicaraguan Revolution, basically this is people in Salentaname, which is an archipelago, like a chain of islands, and like super poor, very remote. Uh, and Ernesto Cardinal had like done a bunch of really interesting stuff. He lived with Thomas Merton in the U.S. and and whatever, and he ended up coming back to Salentaname to be a priest because he wanted to to really establish, like, a a community there and uh, worked with the people to do it. And they ended up actually creating, like, a whole style of art and really fascinating stuff. Anyway, uh, it's interesting because all these conversations are taking place under the dictatorship of uh, Somoza. The Somoza family had ruled... um, kind of in like different ways in Nicaragua for a long time, for decades since like the early 1900s. And uh, it's uh, really interesting to also just kind of not lose sight of that as well, right? Like um, what does it mean to read the Beatitudes as like a person living in Canada or a person living in the U.S.? Like it means something very then reading it like in a community of people who Mm -hmm. are like extremely poor in a remote part of Nicaragua and who are trying to like work out what does it mean to think about the poor in spirit. And so like, and while living under dictatorship when there is like a, you know, a sort of at this point, a brewing resistance that it hasn't necessarily turned the tide, you know? So Mm -hmm. really kind of interesting moment in the history of Nicaragua that coincides with the, with this text. Yeah, totally. Uh, that is helpful to give it <laughs> some deeper, some deeper meaning yet. 
Um, another uh, so in in Gospel Soul Name, they kind of work through each one of the um, the Beatitudes together. But uh, there's a few that they latch onto in particular, and th- that's really interesting. So uh, one that they spend a lot of time talking about is the uh, the Beatitude. It's uh, it's the verse six in Matthew. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. Um, obviously, something kind of going on, exciting there, right? Um, uh, those who who thirst for righteousness and for justice, um, obviously some strong political connotations. Um, so the, uh, the the community in Nicaragua, they say this. This is a, a, another reoccurring person in the group called Young Julio, one of my faves. <laughs> when Funny there's rapping a, name. <laughs> yeah, good. When there's a revolution in a country, the poor aren't hungry anymore, and they are already building. As long as there is hunger, injustice, sickness, well, it seems to me that the kingdom of heaven is very far off. Then um, somebody else chimes in named Alejandro. He blesses blesses those who have compassion. I believe that it's those who have compassion for others that become revolutionaries. There are many who are poor or or who are middle class, city people, employees who earn little salaries, but they're not rich, yet they still have the ambition of the rich. And if sometimes some of them get rich, they might be very cruel. Rebecca pointed out earlier that the poor of Jesus Christ are those who practice love. The poor who are bourgeois, who are opposed to revolutionary changes, they do not have compassion in their hearts, and they are not the poor of the gospel. So, like, um, you know, they're they're reading the words, like, blessed are, are the, the righteous, you know, um, people who, are, who thirst for justice. And they're trying to figure out in their context who these people are mm-hmm. and who they're not. And I, I really like that impulse. It's such a cool yeah. thing. I feel like... Um, if you go to like uh I, I don't know um if you go to like a, a sort of like white mainline church or something you'll encounter conversations about the bible that do kind of come off very academic um and sometimes very detached from the world but i i love the impulse um where people always try to find themselves within it and like what their situation mm-hmm. is it's great um so this they go on to say a little bit more about uh about righteousness and thirsting for justice Loriano, another of the f- folks in the book, says a perfect communism is what the gospel wants. <laughs> all right, <laughs> and then, uh, but then, uh, all is not uh, copacetic in this in this situation. Um, there's another person that chimes in called Pancho, who is also um, denotated as somebody who is quote very conservative, and he says, "Does that mean that Jesus was a communist?" And then they go back and forth for quite a while about what that might mean. It ends though um, with. Um, with uh, another person chiming in, Rebecca, and she says, if we come together as God wishes, yes, communism is an equal society. The word communist means community. And so if we all come together as God wishes, we are all communists. We're all equal. Um, It's just, uh, it's fun to see people work this out. First of all, I think that's great. (laughs) But um, I think it's cool because it does, um, it takes very seriously what it means to be a person who thirsts after justice. Um, Mm -hmm. And who, you know, like, what does it mean to be a person who is really um, concerned with equality in the world? And if you believe, like, really seriously in the Beatitudes that um, that those are the people who God cares about, the people that are about justice, then, like, man, it, it's hard to come to different conclusions. Yeah, I mean, it is, like, kind of uh, almost haunting to read the Gospel in Salantanami when you read other literature from Cardinal right. and other kind of histories of Nicaragua, because... Um, a lot of these people later did join the guerrilla movement and some of them were killed. And Loriano is one of those folks. So yep. like 
if you read, for instance, like Christians in the Nicaraguan Revolution, which is a really cool set of interviews that Mark Randall did, who we had on this podcast a while back. Um, she did with, uh, you know, uh, Cardinal and, and some people who lived in Salentaname and others. Uh, they talk about Loriana there. And then he also comes up in Cardinal's poetry and Cosmic Canticle. Uh, there's some kind of really moving um, poetic portraits to Loriano. There's a it's poem about his death even. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So like to read it in this particular context is so fascinating, too, because it's, you know, here they're saying uh, the person who is uh, who has compassion for others. That's the person who becomes a revolutionary. And that and here you have Loriano saying a perfect communism is what the gospel wants. And he becomes that revolutionary and, and gives his life for it. So, yeah, it's like, uh, man, it, it, so much to say about it. I mean, it's very haunting. It makes you feel like, well, what, what am I doing with my life? All that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, really interesting to kind of follow those those people. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, I think that's the thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't want to speak like too preacher preachery. I don't want to preach. I guess what I'm trying to say, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the left in North America is very oriented on like discussions about theory and stuff. But I, I guess like when you read things like that, it is haunting. Um, it is, uh, it, it's like a lot more serious. I think, you know, it's not about like whatever. It's not about like the stages of capitalism or whatever about dialectics. It's like about a person who is like, um, uh, figuring out a motivation and like parsing out a language for their like revolutionary desire. I think that's like a lot more serious and, pretty interesting than uh than a lot of other folks have in them oh for sure and i think it's interesting too to see the context of all this that this is a bible study that's part of mass mm -hmm. and i mean it gives the lie to certain factions you get on the left sometimes that are like annoyingly anti-religious or complaining about materialism and it gives marx a run for his money as well right like uh at the end of the day um these kinds of ideas, these stories, what is contained in the biblical text, but even more importantly, what's contained in the social life of the church in Salantaname, that is really what activates the revolutionary kind of fervor mm -hmm. of a lot of these folks. I mean, they would not have been revolutionaries were it not for this Christian community, for sure. Yeah, there's no uh, the, the sigh of the oppressed creature here is very different. <laughs> it's not yeah, uh, right, right. it's not saying a prayer about forgiveness. It's like uh, it's like. I don't know, yelling, <laughs> yelling about something. Yeah. yeah. And even reading some of the Beatitudes in the history of Nicaragua is uh, moving, I guess, to me, right? Like um, those who hunger and thirst for justice, uh, they're the ones who are whatever going to get rewarded and uh, will get uh, the kingdom of heaven and all that kind of stuff like um, or they'll be filled, I guess, is what it is. Uh, the the kinds of rewards that you see in the Beatitudes are really interesting in a revolutionary context, mm. right? Like. Um, the reward that they did get in Nicaragua was the deposing of Somoza and for a brief moment, an extremely fertile revolutionary society. I mean, one that was unfortunately crushed by, you know, U.S. backed civil war. But uh, that sort of, um, I guess, like story that Jesus is telling really also I guess when you think of it in a revolutionary situation, it forces you to have a much bigger um, view of the Beatitudes beyond that individual spirituality. It's like uh, when Jesus says something like the peacemakers will be called children of God. It's like, OK, you know, these revolutionaries are, are trying to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> like that's uh, to, to make peace is to create the social conditions for peace to appear. 
or uh, the people who are persecuted because of their righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's that kind of like um, the reward for for that uh, pursuit of righteousness is, you know, a, um, a sort of kingdom reality, which uh, the revolutionary Nicaraguan situation is not heaven, but, you know, it's closer than <laughs> than otherwise. And uh, yeah, just interesting to kind of read these Beatitudes in light of actual material history. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so evangelicals and other Christians sometimes will over-spiritualize these texts. You know, they'll make them all about your personal relationship with God or Jesus or what whatever combination of those two things. Um, so, uh, but, but here in the Gospels and Sultaname, we get a material reading of the Beatitudes or like maybe, maybe, um, or maybe you could just call it like a, a material interpretation or something, right? It's like you're, mm-hmm. you're seeing the text and then you're trying to figure out how to live your life or like how to identify these people in your own society. And, uh, yeah. you're, you're thinking socially, not, uh, sort of spiritually or something. Um, yeah. cool. But there's also another aspect of this that we could probably talk about. Um, it is significant that like um that jesus himself is saying these things it's not that like a prophet is saying these things or some other like leader of the early church saying them but jesus is saying them himself and um you know there's a certain declaration or declarative sense there's a certain declarative sense here that like god is telling you who god cares about in that particular moment and uh like in the beatitudes you're not just getting like sort of like a, a moral framing about how you have to live in the world or like what you should be looking for but it's also telling you about like God's character and like what kind of like creature, not creature, whoops, wrong one. What kind of being God is or something or, or what, what God's priorities are in the world. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and maybe just to like put a fine point on it, I guess, um, adding on to that bit about God's priorities in the world. Um, I mentioned in Luke, the Beatitudes are followed up with woes to the rich. Uh, there's also some really fun conversation about that in the Gospel in Salontaname, and I'll just read one super brief piece of it. So in Luke, it says, Woe unto you rich, because you have already had your joy. Woe unto you who now are full, because you're going to be hungry. Woe unto you who now laugh because you are going to weep in sadness. Uh, kind of an echo back to like the Magnificat, right? Right. Like Mary um, kind of inverting all these values. So again, you get this great discourse about it and so on. Uh, lots of people <laughs> trying to figure out whether or not the rich are evil. That's kind of the big conversation, which <laughs> is really interesting. Um, but there's a moment here where uh, Alejandro, again, says, uh, it's logical that the gospel should put this, uh, should put in this counterpart because if it only said beatitudes for the poor, you might think that there's maybe another kind of beatitudes for the rich or for certain rich people or that Christ is with the poor, but he's also with the rich. But St. Luke makes it clear that it's not that way. For Christ, humanity is divided into two well-defined classes and he's in favor of one and against the other. <laughs> and, uh, really very interesting. And it ends on this uh, wild note also about Cuba. Uh, so I'll, I won't spoil it. You can read, I guess, what they think about it. But um, really, uh, I think a, a cool way of just talking further about, you know, who does God prioritize in a class stratified society? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alejandro, he's on something, I think. <laughs> there are these two <laughs> yeah. classes in society. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the Gospel in Salantaname is great. Uh, there's some other great resources in Liberation Theology, too, that at least as we were talking about this episode came to mind for me, and I thought we could bring some of that in. Um, talking about this issue of spirituality and the poor, I find whenever I talk about the Beatitudes with anybody, even like progressive Catholics, I think people rightly want to also think through the spiritual meaning of that text, right? And and I mentioned, I think that's okay, but the question is sort of how, 
how do you do that without losing the material piece? And one thing I love about Catholics, which is also something that drives me up the wall about them, <laughs> is uh, where some Catholics are like very interested in making good distinctions, lots and lots of distinctions. And uh, there is a really interesting exercise in distinguishing between different kinds of poverty uh, in a document by the Latin American bishops at a conference in Medellin, Colombia in 1968. Um, it is a very important conference where the Latin American bishops sort of came back from their experience in the Second Vatican Council, which is a big Catholic nerd thing you can go read about if you want. But they came back to Latin America and decided to think through um, how to relate differently to their continent, you know, to think through the social conditions that were operative and, and what would it mean to kind of speak the gospel into them. And this particular conference also laid some of the ecclesial blueprints for things like base communities and sort of like the social movement side of liberation theology. It really calls for a grassroots church. Um, and I got to tell you, like, I, I've taught this document before uh, a handful of times in classes, and it's always interesting to hear what people think. Some people think it's like extremely radical. They can't believe bishops are saying it. Other people are like, whoa, I expected a lot more and I'm let down a little disappointed. <laughs> it's not the, the Marxist revolutionary text I thought. Um, it's I'm here to tell you it's both of those things, I guess. <laughs> it depends on what you want out of it. But uh, anyway, they do have this really interesting way of kind of parsing out poverty. So here's what they say. We must distinguish, one, poverty as a lack of the goods of this world necessary to live worthily as human beings is in itself evil. The prophets denounce it as contrary to the will of the Lord and most of the time as the fruit of human injustice and sin. So uh, pretty strong words on the first one. Secondly, spiritual poverty is the theme of the poor of Yahweh. Spiritual poverty is the attitude of opening up to God, the ready disposition of one who hopes for everything from the Lord. Although he values the goods of this world, he does not become attached to them, and he recognizes the higher value of the riches of the kingdom. And then third, poverty as a commitment through which one assumes voluntarily and lovingly the conditions of the needy of this world in order to bear witness to the evil it represents and to spiritual liberty in the face of material goods follows the example of Christ who took to himself all the consequences of our sinful condition and who being rich became poor in order to redeem us. And being rich became poor, they put in quotes, I think, to identify that it's a, a bit of a playful right. phrase here. Um, so these are the three sort of uh, forms of, of poor or poverty that uh, Medellin distinguishes. And I actually really like this part specifically, like, Material poverty is evil, right? Uh, not having access to goods because, you know, we live in a, a world that deprives you of them. That is, there's there's no redeeming that. Um, spiritual poverty is this other thing. Uh, it's this sort of disposition and attitude of opening up to, to God and seeing what's going on. And then you get this kind of almost like dialectical synthesis in the third form, right? That in that opening up to God, uh, someone might also voluntarily take on the condition of material poverty in order to expose it as an evil thing. Um, and yeah, just really fascinating. The document goes on to talk about how, like, in the church, people will have sort of different degrees of, like, you know, that third thing, the poverty as commitment. And that's also very cool. So it doesn't say, like, everybody should just... I don't know, sell all their stuff and, you know, be like uh, live in the, the new monastic communities or whatever. But uh, it does sort of say, like, nevertheless, all Christians have to be uh, compelled to, to distinguish between these different forms of poverty and 
yeah, it's a it's a helpful way of bringing together, I think, some of the the different uses of the Beatitudes. Yeah, totally. I think it is really good um, because, I mean, you don't have to give up one thing for the other, right? It's not like you only have to think about this materially. It's not like you say Luke is right and Matthew is wrong or something, right? You can you mm-hmm. can take them both and kind of understand poverty in these different registers, and that ends up being pretty cool. Yeah, um, it's interesting, too, because... You know, you even today, like there's all kinds of Catholic bishops and Catholic theologians and others who kind of, I guess, push interpretations in a more spiritual direction and away from material interpretations. But it's nice to have a bishop's conference like the like Salam, the Latin American conference, uh, really come out and, you know, lay this down there. Like we've talked in the past, too, about how in the Christian tradition, you get these kind of flashes of like a radical insight or a radical moment. And it's pretty rare that you get them from bishops. Mm. (laughs) And uh, the thing that's important is that, you know, bishops can then kind of walk back these commitments or think about them differently later on or de-emphasize parts of them. And that is definitely true in the history of Latin America. Uh, But one thing that they can't do is like erase that moment, right? That uh, the Medellin sort of distinguishing between these forms of poverty and affirming that actually we do have to think about material poverty and name it as an evil thing that shouldn't exist. Uh, that is just like always going to be kind of in the DNA of the church. And I think that is yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, it's uh, that's like the one good thing about how tradition works. Uh, kind of staying on this theme, maybe I also wanted to bring something out from Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, which maybe we could talk more about this on the theme as well. So, you know, the Beatitudes, like, they we've been talking about how they give us some orientation toward uh, thinking about the poor and and who are they and, and all that kind of stuff. Gutierrez, as usual, has this kind of interesting like way of of reading the Beatitudes as telling us something very good about God. Um, Gutierrez is always doing this in ways that I appreciate as somebody who probably should think about <laughs> God more than I do. Um, so he says this. Uh, The gospel of Jesus proclaims that God loves the poor just because they are poor and not necessarily or even primarily because they are better believers than others or morally firmer than others. God loves them simply because they are poor, because they are hungry, because they are persecuted. Uh, This is from a book called The Power of of the Poor in History, by the way. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, only from this standpoint is it possible to appreciate any enriching considerations upon spiritual poverty. The latter is derivative. What is primary when it comes to God's special love for the poor is literal physical poverty. So he goes on to say more about that. um, But I really like this one point that he makes where he says the Beatitudes are less a revelation about the poor than they are a revelation about God. They tell us who God is. They tell us what his kingdom is like. They tell us of God as a defender of the poor as the protector, the liberator of the poor. Then secondarily and derivatively, they tell us something as well about the privileged role of the poor, the physically concretely poor, the dispossessed and oppressed in God's kingdom. And then he closes saying, here we are confronted with a paradox. If we spiritualize this gospel message about the poor too soon, as it were, and maintain that the poor in the gospel are first and primarily the spiritually poor rather than the plainly and simply materially poor, then we have an easy time with God. We humanize God. We make him more accessible to human understanding. Now God will love first and foremost the good, the meritous, just as we do ourselves. Uh, so I love this kind of like, again, kind of dialectical reversal, right? The, the Beatitudes, when we read them, we often, I often think of it as like telling me something about myself or mm-hmm. about the poor. 
but <laughs> Gutierrez is like, well, firstly, it tells you something about God, what God prioritizes. And secondly, the wild thing about that is when you then go to kind of think about the the you know spiritual meaning of it or the person to person meaning of it, you find that actually it also tells you something about how you should relate to other people and love other people in light of that. And I yeah, just classic Gutierrez, good liberation theology. Yeah, stuff. sure, it's powerful. I think though, it's such a cool. Um, there's a lot a, a lot of um, very difficult ideas to grasp. Um, in it for sure, but it does make um, reading through the Beatitudes a lot clearer. Um, and it's interesting too to see some of like the similarities between even what Gutierrez is saying and what's going on in the Gospel in Sultaname, especially like you know, um, God loves the poor not because they're more like morally upright or or theologically sound or better believers, but be, but that's not the case, right? God loves the poor because they're poor. Because they're like, you know, born into a situation where someone is going to be exploiting them for, you know, no reason. Um, and yeah. that, you know, that tells you a lot about the kind of God that God is, I guess. Yeah. And this idea, too, that like, I mean, I'm sure you've felt this way before, too. Like sometimes when you read the Beatitudes, it does become that kind of meritocratic yeah. reading as Gutierrez is putting out. Right. It's like, uh, oh, if you're just meek enough, you're going to get what's coming to you in a good right. way. Right. Or like. <laughs> You're a peacemaker and good for you. Therefore, you get this good thing like you. You got the you earned the gold star <laughs> that you're supposed to earn or whatever. And uh, I love that Gutierrez is like, well, <laughs> when we think of it that way, we make God like us because we want to love people for their merits or whatever. And actually, the challenge is to be like what the Beatitudes are really telling you is that it, that is not how it works. <laughs> and like that is actually very hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you uh, if you're going through the Beatitudes looking for like your slot, <laughs> maybe don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember like talking to somebody in a Catholic worker house um, about like, I don't know, their life and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, this is when I was like very young and very naive and kind of like a starry eyed would be Christian radical or whatever. And I remember being like, wow, it must be so meaningful for you to like be in this work Catholic worker house serving the poor directly. Like what an amazing thing. And this person talking to me was like, actually, it's awful. Like, it, it's terrible. Every day there's like drunk people in our living room and like I have to like negotiate them and figure out how to get around them and like see how I can help them out and all that kind of stuff. People are like stealing stuff all the time. Like, it's like a pretty stressful environment. And like, it was such a wake up call to me in my brain to, you know, have like idealized uh, that sort of right. heroic, virtuous life. And uh, I think that's the challenge Gutierrez is saying. And and you were saying too earlier, Matt, in the Gospel in Salantaname, there's this kind of recurring theme where it's like uh, God, you know, like the poor can be assholes and like God still prefers them nevertheless. And uh, what does that mean? How do you kind of, you know, comport yourself in the world? I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, a minute ago, you mentioned that there's like this interpersonal thing going on there, too, right? That um, it, it changes the way you think about God, but it also should change the way you comport yourself in the world. That you think about other people, the way that you're interacting with people, especially maybe in like a, a social justice kind of movement uh, or, or whatever. You know, <laughs> you're in your uh, mm -hmm. revolutionary socialist cadre. Um, yeah. Anyways, that um, that makes me think of uh, a, a quote from Herbert McCabe, who is not a liberation theologian. Important to say. But pretty cool, just the same. An honorable mention. Not a not a liberation theologian, but a runner-up, that's for sure. He's about as close as you could be being a person writing in England. Yeah, the that's right. Well, I'll read it, and then we can kind of get into it. But anyways, it's um, maybe the vibe here is that um, the Beatitudes can tell you how to be like a good comrade, um, <laughs> a good collaborator. 
All right, Herb McCabe <laughs> says this. Now, how will you carry on the fight? There are various pieces of advice that might be given, but I would like to reiterate some traditional ones. In the first place, be meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Pray for those that persecute you. Be a peacemaker. Do not insult your enemy and be angry with them. Who, after all, wants a comrade in the struggle who is an arrogant, loudmouth, aggressive bully? The kind of person who jumps on the revolutionary bandwagon in order to work off his or her bad temper or envy or unresolved conflict with parents does not make a good and reliable comrade. Whatever happened to all of those revolutionary students of 1968, what the revolution needs are grown-up people who have caught on to themselves, who have recognized their own infantilisms, and to some extent dealt with them. People, in fact, who have listened to the Sermon on the Mount. Some pretty damning words in here, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of thing you can only say if you spend too much time around a, a bunch of people trying to like organize. That's right. Kurt McCabe, I'm in this and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, pretty uh, okay. Um, maybe some troubling, uh, some troubling self criticism I need to do here. Some reflection on my own infantilisms. But um, Kurt McCabe is, is probably right, though. Um, there's a. Th- this is maybe the um, okay, like. Uh, we we heard about like what it might mean materially at, at the level of like social analysis or something like who are the who are the poor who are the meek or whatever, and then we have you know um, the beatitudes like uh, describing God and who God cares about, and then there's this one like how are you gonna how are you personally gonna do these <laughs> in in a in a really serious way like um, are you gonna be a jerk are you gonna show up to the meeting and try to just like uh, and. and uh, swear up and down and be angry at somebody uh, without any kind of um, with any uh, any kind of discipline or something is is good. This is the the hard lesson we all need to hear. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's also an interesting way to, again to just look at the utility of the beatitudes. Yeah. You know, like um, they are not uh, they're not like I don't know magic formulas by any stretch, obviously, but they are these kind of really interesting, challenging sayings or challenging uh, devices that you can kind of try out on yourself and see how you uh, measure up to them and um, how they might make you into a different person if you were to let them work on you in these interesting ways. And I really appreciate too that line from McCabe that like it makes you a good uh, a good comrade, right? Like. Um, beyond that too if we kind of combine that a bit with what Gutierrez is saying it makes you a good comrade and it helps you to also um, I guess comport yourself even further in the struggle inside and, and outside right like I was thinking uh, recently uh, I was watching a, an exchange on Twitter that Matt was having with this guy who uh, <laughs> over COVID stuff um, I forget what all the details of the tweets were but it was like Matt was saying uh, just because somebody's not vaccinated doesn't mean that they shouldn't have access to care in, in a hospital. I said that. And <laughs> what, what a yeah. radical take. And this other person was like, no, <laughs> like they they don't deserve that care because they made this choice or whatever. And, uh, you know, like that is such a like uncomradely way of thinking in a general sense. It's like. Uh, you know, being able to sort of really take in that message of like, it's not about who deserves it or like, this is kind of the, the anti Hillary Clinton thing, I guess, you know, it's not a basket of deplorables or whatever. <laughs> That's not really the the division that we're dealing with in the world. Um, you know, what does it mean to kind of look on even your enemies with compassion or uh, what does it mean to like fight for healthcare for people who like are very unkind <laughs> like make extremely bad choices about their health and yours and all that kind of stuff so uh you know seeing the beatitudes as like 
a way of making you better in the struggle with your own kind of people that you work with, you know, so so that you can actually get something done. And then also shaping the way that you see uh, people in the world who who need help, whether or not they are like on the right side of history or something. Uh, I think it's it's good to see the Beatitudes as just offering those kinds mm-hmm. of tools. Yeah, I think so. Um, that That's like the emotional litmus test for people who I think are very serious when it comes to organizing something like, um, you know, do you actually care about people who disagree with you, I guess? Because in, in so many cases, like, you know, people online, uh, they'll, you know, you'll put a hammer and sickle in your your Twitter name or whatever. And like, you're a socialist, mm-hmm. but you know, at, at the end of the day, like what you mean by being a socialist is like, you have a set of things that you believe everyone should agree with. And if they don't agree with them, you don't really care about them. Right. And like, you kind of just ignore them or mm-hmm. you're mean to them or you bully them or whatever. And I don't know, not only is that uncomradely, that's also just like an awful way to live your life. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it demonstrates that like yeah. your care is really only, um, is really only goes as far as uh, people are willing to agree with you. And that's not, that's not socialism and that's definitely not Christianity and it sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's again, that kind of meritocratic view, right? It's like, you have to sort of earn the right to be cared about. And uh, the weird challenge of Christianity is that the whole point is that you can't really do that. You can't really earn the ability to be cared about. Um, You just are cared about by virtue of that's what, what God wants Christians to do. And, when it comes to thinking about what that means for our political life, it means advocating for policies for people that you would prefer not to spend yeah, time totally. on. Totally. Uh, Joe Manchin. I don't like him, but I think he should, I think he should have <laughs> universal health care. I mean, he already does. He doesn't pay for it, but still, I think that he and his whole family yeah. should have it and not have to worry about it. <sighs> yeah. It's a hard lesson <laughs> to learn. I mean, it's like, especially with the ways that sort of our media media ecosystems are created and the ways that our communities are created online. Um, you know, you're rewarded for being mean to people. And I mean, whatever, mm-hmm. sometimes you can be mean to people and it's not a problem. But like, you know, if you're not, if your meanness is getting in the way of your organizing, or if you can't just be like an adult about something, <laughs> if you, uh, if you're, if your infantilisms are like out of control, you're, uh, you're on the wrong track. Yeah, for sure. Or, I mean, even something I've, kind of learn this is part of just growing up i guess like like mccabe is saying grown-ups who are capable of you know leaving their infantilisms behind or whatever um you know like it is uh really easy to get very mad at people and uh let that sort of be the primary lens by which you see the world and like you said because you you do get rewarded for that as well like you know uh bad company attracts bad company i guess or bad attitudes attracts bad attitudes and like, I, th- I think it's still very good to be critical and it's fine to like cyberbully Joe Manchin or whatever. <laughs> totally. Like, I'm not Go saying, for it. I'm not, not trying to like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to uh, uh, police anybody's behavior on those kinds of things. But I do think that there's something to also recognizing when your language is like alienating potential totally, allies yeah. or, uh, you know, like when I started working in an actual social movement and had to think very hard all of a sudden about like, wait a minute, if somebody like hears me say this thing under my breath or whatever, like it, it will be a barrier for sure to them, like trusting me with something important or like working with me on some particular project. And, you know, like uh, all of a sudden you recognize that's not only a strategic decision. It is also like a moment of kind of spiritual self-care of being like, huh, <laughs> probably I shouldn't just be that crabby <laughs> all the time anyway. Right. Like there's something about the Beatitudes that sort of encourage you to be uh, more effective, more reflective, healthier, and so on. And uh, yeah, that that's very important. I think so. 
Okay, so we've been through it. Um, we've got the the material sort of social level reading of um, of the Beatitudes, and they're great. You should be figuring out who the peacemakers are. You should be figuring out what striving for justice means, uh, and you should figure out what being <laughs> what being filled with justice might mean in your situation. Yikes! <laughs> it could be it could be good even, but it's also kind of a scary idea. I think. Um, cool. <laughs> then you have sort of a um, the balance of the spiritual and phys- and material, um, and uh, that's great too. An important important piece you get the character of god uh you get to figure out what god's all about and who god is really prioritizing in the world and that's exciting and then you got at the very end um a very self-reflective and maybe self-damning uh <laughs> word word from herb mccabe about like how you should be acting sort of in accordance to um these principles in your everyday life as you uh are fighting for, I don't know, whatever it is that you're fighting for, hopefully <laughs> some kind of just world, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who you are out there listening to this. But anyways, in, in each of these registers, though, I think the Beatitudes end up being way more helpful than they ever have been in sort of like the weird evangelicalization of them in the weird like uh, over-spiritualized kind of aspect. Um, I think what you get is like, um, you know, at the end of the day, Jesus is telling you these things um, and they have real moral worth um and real like power i think if you kind of put them into your own life and and like really i don't know play with them and interpret them and kind of figure out what they might mean the attitudes have a real tendency to be like overused and kind of like stripped from their context but i think if you really think about them um it's really hard to think about (laughs) if you really think about them it's really hard to figure out how you would be like a capitalist and and actually believe these things right like kind of working your way through them it, it seems sort of impossible to me. It seems like you have to be willfully ignorant of a lot of things uh, if you if you want to kind of just keep on living a, a very bourgeois life. You'd have to be rich in spirit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, well, the Beatitudes, they're great. Check them out. And uh, as always, I guess the way to really sign off any conversation about the Beatitudes is the way that uh, Luke taught us how, which is to say, uh, woe to the rich. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Magnificast. Um, if you can't do that, then go tell the the rich, whoa, tell them that. Just walk right up to them and say, and say it to your face. They'll know what you mean. Whoa. Whoa, you sure? They'll know what you're talking about. Tell them it's from the Bible if they don't. Um, cool. Our intro music is from Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is from The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have